God is like an artist who creatively takes media and colors that seem odd and puts them together using techniques that are regarded as radical. In the book of Acts, God took a small band of misfits and transformed them into his church. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, everyday people became teachers, evangelists, and servant leaders. The church grew by the hundreds, people from every profession and socioeconomic background. In spite of their great diversity, their commitment and passion for Jesus radically unified them. They were marked by boldness, generosity, and their love for one another. Although perilous persecution scattered them, the gospel continued to circulate and the church relentlessly grew. What started in Jerusalem spread throughout Judea, across Samaria, and began to consume the world. This is the book of Acts. Well, it's so exciting to be with you guys this weekend as we enter into God's Word and travel through the story that is unfolding before us. Um, as a parent of eight children, ranging between the ages of 16 and 7, I have come to realize uh, through the journey of parenting that the way we use our words and the way we act are both incredibly important as we raise our children up. In other words, what they're hearing from us and what they're seeing in us are equally important in the parenting process. If we are the kinds of people that, uh, that are constantly speaking things into our children, uh, lecturing them, telling them how to live, uh, dialoguing with them, pouring wisdom into them, showing them what's, what's good, uh, building character in them through what we're telling them, but then what, the way we live and what they're observing in us is contrary to what we're saying, frankly, our words are useless and mean nothing. Because they are not going to learn from what we say, they are going to learn from what they see. But simultaneously, if we live in front of our children, the lives we want them to live, we live that life out, we're constantly showing them what it looks like to live, but we're never engaging with them, never sharing with them, never debriefing with them, never dialoguing with them, never teaching them, explaining to them what's going on in our hearts and minds behind what they're observing, then frankly what they observe will be interpreted in any way they see fit in terms of their minds because we're not teaching them. So parenting is always a combination of creating an environment where the child can observe the realities that are being taught and when observed that those things are being explained, wrestled with, unpacked and, and debriefed with with that child. So the parenting process is this combination, this great dynamic between what they see and what they hear and how we deal with them in that fact. And if we do that, if we give them plenty to see, plenty to watch, and we're constantly pouring into them, explaining, then what happens is our children end up walking into the full potential that they were created to walk into. That's what I desire as a parent, right? I want my children to become all that they were meant to become and not to miss out by living a life that is less than they could have lived, less than they should have lived because I didn't pour into them both through the observable side as well as the, the, just the listening, teaching, speaking side. And what I love so much about the God that we serve as our father, our parent, is that he understands that when we become adults, that doesn't really change. 
It's not like we grow up and suddenly we don't need to learn through observation and through hearing. In fact, that's exactly how we learn. We learn by seeing things put into practice and by hearing how they work and how they function. So God has produced through his word this incredible reality of teaching us about the life we've been created to live, about what it looks like and how to live it out, both through environments of observation as well as environments of simply teaching, lecturing, showing. We saw this as we followed Jesus, right, through the Gospels, that the Gospels are full of stories and moments and realities that we can observe, there's the life of Jesus. And and it just kind of tells the story. Look, watch him, watch how he lives, watch what he does, watch what's going on, and then there are other sections of the gospel where we're sitting and listening in to Jesus, listening in to him, teaching a speech on a mountain, uh, a speech to a woman, a speech to a guy here. Uh, there's, there's times where you're just listening in. And in that combination of watching him live it, listening to him teach it, we, be, we become, uh, we, we find ourselves in this place where the dynamic of learning is powerful and we have the opportunity to learn in a way that makes us the people we were created to be. As we entered into the book of Acts, the book of Acts written by Luke to Theophilus uh, is a book of observation, right? I mean, it is literally what its title suggests, a book of Acts of the Apostles, Acts of the early church of the New Testament. It is the actions that took place. So this book is intended to constantly say to us, look, Look and see, look and see how they live, what they're doing, how it plays out, what the outcome is, because this is how you will learn. But instead of leaving us in a sequence of observation exclusively for the entire book of Acts, what God has wondrously affected is that throughout the story of the book of Acts, as things are unfolding, uh, we see teaching coming in to spaces for the early New Testament church to explain things to them, to show them what's going on. We saw this occur in the book of Acts so far. Now, we, we began the journey with Jesus giving the mission of God and the kingdom of God a- and the power of God to his disciples, saying, I'm going to make you witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. I am going to send you out. I'm going to scatter you into the world with power by the Holy Spirit, with mission from me, holding the keys to my kingdom, you are going to take redemption and you're going to go and spill it out into the darkness, into death, into bondage, and you are going to bring life. That's what you're going to do. And then we watched that being affected. As the early church was empowered by the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and sent out by God, uh, we observed the realities that were the result of that sending, right? There were some unbelievable, miraculous things that occurred. I mean, The most miraculous community was born where it just seemed like freedom uh, was just a part of everything. They they shared their stuff. They gathered together. They lived life transcendent of circumstance. And within that community, there was togetherness. There was the sharing of needs. There was healing taking place. There was all sorts of spiritual, physical, emotional, mental awakenings. It was fun to watch. But we also found out early on in the story that when you're living on mission for God on planet Earth, it doesn't just come with a better life for you now, right? It comes with some very difficult things as well because anytime the gospel of Jesus Christ is going out, it threatens, by definition, the individual human being or institutional human organization's uh, power and significance and, and, and pursuits. I mean, the gospel always calls us 
out of ourselves, to die to ourselves, to, to abandon the things we thought were important. So that becomes a threat to any power out there, including the individual. And so we should expect that we're going to face great opposition because the Bible says when the light came into the world, the darkness did not want anything to do with the light and ran from it. Uh, do we think we're going to have it any different? And so as we watch the early church enter into the story, miraculous things are born and then trouble comes and persecution arises and the powers that be press hard. Stephen gets stoned right after he is stoned to death. A great persecution emerges in Jerusalem. The church is scattered out into Judea and Samaria and really to the ends of the known world. The gospel travels with them and we see a mix now of miracles and martyrdom. Miracles and martyrdom. Uh, miraculous things happening, but people having to die to self, people physically having to die for the sake of the gospel. And so we realize this is probably our life story, a combination of those things as we travel on mission for God. That's the way it's going to play. And then we get to the stage in the book of Acts in chapter 12 where the powers that have been against them seem to be gaining momentum, becoming stronger, not weaker. Didn't, it wasn't what you thought it would be, right? And so the church is now grappling with, have we underestimated the powers that be have we underestimated what they're going to do to us because now uh, Herod who is the Jewish political powers the Sanhedrin which is the Jewish religious powers and Rome which is the political uh, power that be over all of that all of them are pressing in hard Herod Agrippa the first who is Herod at this time he grabs James one of the disciples of of Jesus the brother of John pulls him into the temple, beheads him, he is martyred. Shocking to the church because at this point there seemed to be a supernatural protection over the apostles. Then Peter is imprisoned, he escapes from prison uh, through a miraculous circumstance with an angel, but he tells the church it's getting really, really heated out here. Uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna go underground for a while, get word to James, the brother of Jesus in Jerusalem, he'll know what to do. Uh, James then sends a letter out, right, as you know, to the 12 tribes scattered, to the, the whole global church. And in this letter, we see what God is now doing. See, we're observing what's going on in the church, but now God is going to do some explaining. And so this is the lecture. This is the speech. This is the moment where you get with the kids and go, now you've been watching dad, but now we're going to talk about what you've seen so that you understand what's going on in my head and in my heart because then you understand why it's happening. And so James says things like, when you face trials of many kinds, remember what the enemy is utilizing for your destruction. God is going to redeem for your salvation and sanctification. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, now you know that. And so James begins walking through all these things we need to know. Now, we need to understand what's going on inside of our hearts. We need to remember who we are in Christ. We, we, we can't look in the mirror and then just leave and forget. We, we need to stay guarded in our hearts and guarded in our minds and guarded in our words because they can destroy us. And he kind of walks through the way of the wise in the midst of missional living. And at the end of his letter, he concludes with this extraordinary final thought where he says this, look at the end of it all, when you're facing a greater obstacle than you thought, the powers against you are bigger than you anticipated, you feel like they've got the upper hand and you're losing the battle, don't lose heart, persevere, stay the course, because you know that Jesus' promise of redemption is true, he is returning, right? And then he says this, if you're going to stay the course, you've got to stay real close to Jesus. Pray, 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 pray. Remember that? It's like, man, whatever's going on in your life, pray. 
Because you've got to stay connected to Jesus because once you lose that distance, you start getting all discombobulated and lost in your thoughts. And then he says, look, as you pray, remember this. You and I are like Elijah, the same nature. Elijah could know the will of God because God revealed his will to Elijah. And then Elijah knew the will of God, prayed the will of God, saw the will of God happen. And so too we live as people of God, full of the Holy Spirit. We should desire God's will, seeking him, being captivated by him, staying close to him. And then as he reveals his will to us, which he will as we are close to him, we should pray his will, we should do his will, and then we will see his will. And then he ends James by saying, and don't do this alone, because then you're going to forget all this stuff. And as James closes his letter out, and we're done with the speech, right? We've now sat in the living room. We've listened in to what's going on around us, what we're observing. Now we're going to step back into observing. It's almost like James says, now go back and watch what happens with the church. And we're going to step back into the book of Acts. And we're going to watch how this now unfolds, considering the fact that the letter of James has circulated, that the church is kind of getting this idea. How are they responding to this? How are they living this out? What are the results of that? What can we see? as we observe that, we will begin to see what it is God wants us to know about the life we need to live because we are this church. We are just a, 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 a church further down the road in terms of uh, uh, generational boundaries and geographical boundaries, so, but it's the, it's the same story. So grab your Bibles and let's jump back into the privilege of observing what God is doing in his people and so also what he intends to do in and through us. We're gonna turn to Acts chapter 13. We're gonna be in verse one. It's on page 599 of the Bibles that we provide or if you have your own Bible, it is Acts chapter 13 verse one. Now before we jump into Acts chapter 13 verse one, just remember real quick the the setting in which we're in in the immediate. Uh, Herod, uh, Herod Agrippa I, who was the one that was persecuting James and killed him and persecuting Peter. He has just died through a supernatural act of God. And in his death, uh, we see also that Barnabas and Saul, who were up in Jerusalem, have just left Jerusalem because their service there is done and they've headed out. So look at verse 25. Now verse 25 of chapter 12 of the book of Acts. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So we're brought out of the James-Peter story and Herod story. Herod dies, Herod Agrippa I, and we find out that Barnabas and Saul, who were up in Jerusalem, have now headed out from Jerusalem, and where do they go? Well, that's what we're about to find out. Take a look. In verse 1, this is what it says. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manon, a lifelong friend of Herod, and Saul. So there it starts. Verse 1. It gives us a quick picture of what's going on and what environment we're in now. Now, some very interesting realities about what we've just read. This verse holds a wealth of information for us if we're paying attention. Luke is writing to Theophilus. He's trying to uh, let Theophilus know what's going on with the gospel, and he's shifting the spotlight now from Jerusalem, and he's shifting the spotlight to a church outside of Jerusalem that's also a very prominent church with prominent potential. See, up to now, up 
to this point, everything's come out of Jerusalem. It's not that everything's happened in Jerusalem. It's just that if there's something going on in the known world, it's always, well, then Peter came from Jerusalem, or the people in Jerusalem sent word out, or word was sent to Jerusalem. The epicenter of everything that was happening for the gospel was coming out of Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem was kind of bleeding out, and a ripple was going, and the impact of that ripple was the rescue of the people that God was pursuing. But what we're beginning to see now is as the ripple has gone out of rescue, the restored purpose of living on mission on planet Earth is beginning to impact not only Jerusalem now, but other churches around. So the spotlight shifts from Jerusalem and says, yes, that's still happening in Jerusalem, but it's also happening in some other places now. So we're going to shift to the church in Antioch. I'm going to go, okay, the church in Antioch, some cool things were happening there. James, I mean, Luke writes to Theophilus and says, let me tell you a little bit about this church in Antioch. It was a prominent player, and he describes a few of the people that were in the leadership at the church in Antioch. Now, we don't know a ton about these people, but what we can draw from this is that Luke was describing to Theophilus either some people that Theophilus would probably have recognized. You see how he's very descriptive? Well, this guy's there. He's also called that guy, and then that guy's there, and you remember that guy. So we start with Barnabas, right? Barnabas was clearly highly connected in the global church at this point. Barnabas has traveled all over the place. He's called the encourager. We see him bump into the leadership of the church on multiple occasions. It was Barnabas who was the key player in convincing Paul and the leadership of the church, the apostles, to come together. So Barnabas clearly was very connected to the apostles themselves because he had the equity, the relational equity, to be a voice to connect a guy who had been persecuting the church who they were very skeptical of to these apostles. Barnabas has been all over the place. He's been in Tarsus, up to Damascus, down to Jerusalem. I mean, in Jer- down to Jerusalem. He's been uh, in Antioch, and it seems that Barnabas was one of the key leaders from Antioch. So Barnabas is playing a key role in Antioch. So immediately, if you're reading this, you go, oh, this is the church that Barnabas is from. Wow, now that's a that's a church. That's a, that's a world-shaking church right there. And he goes, but that's not all that's, uh, that's in this church. Listen, the guys for, from Cyrene are here as well. So you've got a, an international equation coming here. The African side is part of this as well. And he's like, yeah, this church has those guys from Cyrene. And I bet, although I don't know this for sure, when I die I'll find out, that Theophilus would probably have recognized those names going, oh, he's there? Wow, that's awesome. But even if he didn't, the fact of the matter is he's making a point to say Barnabas is here who's a key player in the major story of the church. These guys from Africa are up here, so there's that equation as well. And then he goes, oh, and Manon is there. Manon was a lifelong friend of Herod. Now, this is Herod Antipas, not Herod Agrippa I. Herod Agrippa I was the one that persecuted James, tried to arrest Peter, and was just uh, his, lost his life. But Herod uh, um, uh, Antipas was before him. Remember? Herod the Great was in power when Jesus was born, and Herod the Great's the one that killed all the kids to try to kill Jesus. After he dies, Herod Antipas comes to power. Herod Antipas reigns through most of the life and ministry of Jesus. And then after that, Herod Agrippa comes to power, and it was Herod Agrippa who just died. Manon is a dear, lifelong friend of Herod Antipas, which gives us a history. It says he wasn't just part of this Herod guy that was in power for a few years. He traveled with 
grew up with was part of the inner circle of Herod. So what does this say? Barnabas is highly connected. These guys from Cyrene are highly involved in the global church. And listen, Manon is here who's highly connected to Jerusalem and to, to the political powers of, of, um, uh, uh, of the Jewish people. So here's the deal. This is that kind of church where you look into and you go, I mean, they're there and they're there. And, I mean, this church is going to make a difference, man. That's a, that's a, that's a world-changing, world-shaping church. And then it says to us, in addition to this, Saul was also at this church because he came down there with Barnabas. So Saul is an emerging leader in the movement of Christianity at this time. Saul is someone they've been watching because remember, uh, Saul, after he was persecuting the church, uh, he was persecuting them significantly, encountered Jesus, and in that encounter with Jesus, had his life completely changed, and now he is integrating into the reality of the church in a big way. And it's been long enough now that that's become clear. When, when Saul started his journey, he was bent on the fact that he wanted to become a key player in the movement of God. He wanted to become a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was under the tutelage of Gamaliel. You remember Gamaliel was the guy that was on the Sanhedrin that every time Peter and John were bumping into those guys, it was Gamaliel that was bringing some wisdom to the table. Gamaliel was considered during this time one of the greatest rabbis that lived in Jerusalem. And if you were under the tutelage of Gamaliel, as Saul was, that was like coming out of the Ivy League, right? I mean, that, that was coming out of Harvard. You're already connected. You already have a resume. You're already in because he taught you. And so as you come out of that, Saul enters into the Pharisaical movement. He becomes a leader among the Pharisees. And then his zealous nature for the things of God jumps in and he actually goes after the way, the Christian movement, the gospel, because he believes that the gospel is a threat to the institution that he loves, that he believes is guarding the truths of God. Although what he discovers is as he's chasing after the way, he's the one that initiates the stoning of Stephen. He's the one that initiates the massive persecution in Jerusalem. He's the one that chases after Christians all the way to Damascus to go and get him. And on his way to Damascus, he encounters Jesus. Jesus transforms his life in an incredible supernatural encounter. And from that moment forward, Saul begins to preach the gospel unapologetically. So much so that the powers that be get all ticked off and they want to kill him. So he has to go underground. He heads up to Arabia. He heads up to uh, Tarsus, Damascus. And during a couple of years, he's completely off the radar. God is discipling him, preparing him, and shaping him as he comes out of this. Now, he knows the word of God intimately because he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He says it himself. But in this journey of integrating into the reality of Christ, he goes through years of discipleship. After three years, Barnabas brings him to Jerusalem and he interacts there with the apostles, gets involved with the leadership, and now they've just been sent out from Jerusalem because their service there is done. So you have to remember, Saul is now at the, at the pinnacle of that potential as a leader who's gonna emerge. So you see the collision here? A prominent church outside of Jerusalem with prominent leaders from an international environment, highly connected to all of the important parts, have Saul on their team now, who is an emerging prominent leader of the church. What do you think about this church? I'm pretty excited about this church. I mean, I'm looking at this going, you converge Saul and Antioch, and you've got something going on there. And Barnabas brought Saul there to help them grow this church into a world-shaping church. All of that we see in this verse. Now, 
We've covered verse 1. The question now, the reason I think Luke took the time to describe these little people real quick for us so we could go, oh, this is an important church, is because the question that should be lingering in our minds is this. If there's an important church outside of Jerusalem, what's that church up to? Because remember, we're observing again, right? James told us what we should be up to. We should be staying close to Jesus. We should be asking, desiring his will. As we discover his will, which he will show us, we should pray his will. We should do his will. Then we will see his will. What is this church up to? Are they actually living that story out? Let's take a look. In verse 2, it says this. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said. There it is. Such a simple statement, isn't it? Such a simple statement. While they were worshiping and fasting, the Holy Spirit said something. So you see, immediately, Luke directs our attention to this church and says, okay, now that we've gone through the kind of struggle with Herod and the powers that be, and James has written the letter, and it's circulated, and he said, stay the course, persevere, stay close to Jesus, seek his will, know his will, pray his will, live his will, do it in community. What do we see a prominent church outside of Jerusalem doing? Right off the bat, he says, this church was worshiping and fasting. I mean, this kind of group of leaders, you could imagine a million things they're doing, but he focuses on that. They were together in community, and they were worshiping, and they were fasting. What are you doing worshiping and fasting? Well, you're staying connected with God, intimate with Him, and seeking, desiring, wanting to know what He wants you to do. You're coming to Him saying, this is your story, you are the one, and I want to know what you need. And so they're there, connecting with God, worshiping, praying, seeking, waiting, and the Spirit speaks. See, just as James said, as we come and stay connected to God, God's will will be revealed to us through His Spirit, through the Word of God, through the community of God. Take a look. The Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. That's all He says. That doesn't seem like a big deal, does it? Doesn't seem like a big deal. But listen, it's a huge deal. See, if you were listening into what Lucas just laid out for us here, you, you realize what a big ask that is. You have a church that is a prominent church that's uh, on, the, uh, on the verge of becoming something that can really shape the world in its area. God has brought to them Barnabas and Saul back to that church from Jerusalem. Barnabas has returned, that's exciting. Have you ever had someone leave and then return and how cool that is? And you're like, never leave again! I mean, that's kind of what's going on here. And Saul has just arrived, he's in this place. Everybody looking into this should look into this and going, this is a convergence that that was ordained by God, man. And here's what the Holy Spirit says. I want you to take Barnabas, who's back now, and Saul, who's the emerging leader, and I want you to send him away. See, it's a a big ask, It, it really is. It's not a small thing. It's the Spirit of God saying, look, here's the deal. I brought them to you so that I could have you send them for me. It's sort of a weird deal. I brought them to you so that I could have you send them for me. And so now this church is looking at this. They're seeking the will of God. God speaks his will to them and says, I want you to send these guys. How does this church respond? See, part of me expects a paragraph now on their big wrestle. 
you know, discussion with God, a few prayer meetings, some committees gather up, and like, what do we do? I mean, this, are you sure that's the Holy Spirit? Why would he send them here and then just take them? That doesn't make any sense, but there's none of that paragraph. You see, it's a, there's the simplest little three verses that you could possibly uh, come across. It's just real simple. Look what it says. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. That's it. Sometimes we think the scriptures are this deep, complex web of information that unless you have a doctorate degree, you can't possibly understand, and so you're really hesitant to get into it. But you know what I've actually found about scripture? That the majority of it is very simple. The problem is it's so simple that we look at our complex lives and our complex wrestles with God and our complex stuff, and we go, it can't be that simple. It must mean something I don't understand because I don't want to do that. I, I think I find that a lot. It's like, that just seems too easy. It's like, no, no, it is too easy because there is already a precedent set about how these people are dealing with God. See, God comes, he reveals his will because they were seeking his will, and then what do they do? The first thing they do is they pray his will. They go to Saul and Barnabas, lay hands on them and say, God, you have set these men apart for your work. We pray over them, we pray for them, we pray for your work, we pray for you to go with them, we pray for you to take them where they need to go. Immediately, their first response is, once I have determined and discerned the will of God, I begin to pray the will of God because I want the will of God. See, when we pray the will of God, we are saying, God, I don't want my will. I want your will. So if I see your will, I'm going to begin to pray for your will, even if it violates my will. And as they pray, their final step is, after they prayed for them, what they do? They sent them. Go, go. The Spirit will take you where He needs to go. It's an amazing moment. So simple, so so quick, so three verse, and, and yet in it is everything that we want, right? It's just a simple trust that they just go, God said send them, we send them. God said do this, we do this. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't matter. He's revealed it to us. That's what we're going to do. We sought his will as we prayed and fasted. He revealed it to us as he promised he would. We've prayed his will, and now we do his will. And what do you expect we're going to see? See, what the church began to understand and what God is showing us as we observe this church is that God's uh, plan for our story is always a plan of gathering and then scattering, gathering and then scattering as a community that's true as well as as an individual. God's plan is that he will provide for us what we need to give back to him. See, I wish we always added that last sentence to that. Because we always say, God will provide what you need. But you see, what you need is stuff to give to him. That's actually all you need. You need things to do for the kingdom. If you have nothing, you have nothing to bring to the table for the kingdom. So guess what God gives you? He gives you a bunch of stuff to bring to the table for the kingdom for him. If you're gifted and talented, that's given to you to bring to the table for the kingdom. If you have resources more than you know what to do with or less than you know what to do with, that's actually given to you to bring to the table for the kingdom. All of it is is given to your relationships, given to you to bring to the table for the kingdom. It doesn't mean that you lay your spouse on an altar for the church and say, use them. It doesn't mean you bring all of your money and lay it at the feet of the church. What it means is that if you have a spouse, you love them for the gospel's sake, for Jesus' sake, not because you want them to love you back. 
If you have resources, you use it to provide adequately for your family in a manner worthy of the gospel, not buying into the cultural realities that says, you got to give them everything they want. See, everything we've been given is for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of the expansion of the kingdom. So here's what this church understood. Everything we're given is given to us so that when God asks for it, we have it to give. How cool is that? God's going to ask you for stuff you don't have, but before he asks you, he's going to give it to you so you can give it to him. That's pretty awesome. And that's exactly what they realized. If we have Barnabas and Saul, they are given to us so that God can tell us what he wants and we can do it. And so we have the incredible, unique privilege of living the will of God because he gave us what we needed to do it. And so we see this church understanding that. They understood that anything that they receive is always made available to God to give back to him as he sees fit because his story is always better than our story. We have a tendency as human beings to live in a gathering and keeping environment. Gather and keep, gather and keep. We build churches so we can get the most people and get the most resources and get the most fame and get the most this and the most that. And we do anything we can to keep all of you so you won't leave our church. So if you're unhappy, we make you happy. And God goes, oh, don't live like that, man. Don't live like that. Because people come, people go. I move them as I see fit. And things come and things go. And resources come and resources go. That's your life. Don't gather and keep. And he says that to us as individuals as well. We tend to take anything he provides for us and guard it like it's ours. Like someone's trying to steal it, even God. You're not going to take it back, are you? I, I gave it to you so that you would have something to give back to me. So live in a gathering and scattering mentality because your soul is already rescued so you already have everything you need. Everything else is just stuff I give you so you can use it for me. And the church understood that. But you see, intellectually understanding that we live in an economy that says gather, scatter, gather, scatter isn't really where it begins. In order to see that become a reality, to live a life where we are free to receive and then to, 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 to let go, to give, to spend as God reveals, to live a life for the gospel instead of for ourselves, for his will instead of for our will, we have to start somewhere else. We have to start in a place where we are so captivated by what Jesus has done and who Jesus is and what the gospel is that we abandon our will and we submit ourselves to his will. And we see that in this story, in the, in the story of Saul. Right? I mean, the church is one thing, Antioch is willing to bring in and send out, but it's Saul who's kind of being sent out, isn't it? With Barnabas. So these two guys come together. Think about Saul for a second. Saul has now lived an incredible journey with Jesus over the last three and a half plus years. He has encountered Jesus on two specific occasions we know of in supernatural ways, one at the road to Damascus. Another time he was taken into heaven, saw visions of heaven, and so much so that he actually bothered to say, I can't even tell you what I saw. It was so crazy cool. Like, I don't even know how to use words to tell you, so just know I saw stuff. I mean, he has had some encounters. He knows the word of God probably better than any of these leaders. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's now zealous and passionate about the gospel. He preaches without fear. We're gonna watch Saul as he becomes Paul become ridiculously courageous. We know that he has a voice. He's gonna begin to write letters to the church. He's gonna become many of those lectures and speeches for us as we work through the book of Acts. This guy is up here and guess what he's been doing for the last three years? constantly submitting himself to the will of God and to the leadership in the community of God. That's what he's been doing. 
He ought to be standing up like this going, I know more than you. I'm more strategic than you. I understand more than you. I have God more than you. I mean, I have an extraordinary relationship with God. I mean, I see visions. God shows up for real. I'm like an apostle now. And what does he do instead? He constantly comes into environments and says, hey man, I, I, tr I trust the Spirit of God in you guys. You, you tell me. Where, where do I need to go? I mean, he, he was sent from Jerusalem because his service there was done. I, I love that they say that in the last verse of chapter 12 because it's almost as though Paul went there with Barnabas and said, I'm here to serve. And when they were done with his service, he said, where do you want me to go? Well, we'll head back to Damascus and then shoot down to Antioch with Barnabas. Done. Now he gets to Antioch and the community comes around and they're praying and fasting together and the Spirit of God tells them something and Paul immediately submits himself to the Spirit of God and submits himself to the community of God. And he says, look, I, I'm ready. I'm willing. I'm, I'm always ready to go. There is a certain reality in the biblical community that we will never see the gathering, scattering reality become a, a, a part of our DNA until we have a people individually willing to submit themselves to the will of God and to the revealed will of God through the word of God, through the spirit, and through the biblical community. Coming to one another and saying, I, I don't see clearly, can you see clearly for me? And I will submit to that. Listening to one another, listening to the Spirit, listening to the Word and stepping in. This is what we see in Saul, a willingness to step in. And what happens when you have a willingness to submit yourself to the will of God saying, not my will, but your will be done and a gathering, scattering mentality? Well, then you begin to see exactly what James said we would see, that when we are living a life intimate with God, discovering His will, having it revealed, praying His will, doing His will, not our will, then suddenly you begin to see an extraordinary thing happen. Redemption moves forward. The gospel overcomes. Light swallows up darkness. Life swallows up death. Bondage is lost to freedom. That's what you're going to see. And we certainly see that in this story, right? The ripple from Jerusalem has rippled out to Antioch now. They are now raising up leaders and sending out people. And then that ripple is going to continue. Because Saul and Barnabas were willing to go and because the church at Antioch were willing to send and scattering and gathering were part of their mentality and listening, revealing, praying, and doing the will of God was their acts. Here's what happens. Saul and Barnabas do go. We're going to follow them through some of the most extraordinary stories in Scripture as they go from town to town, city to city, now preaching the gospel. We're going to see how much we learn about the contexts we live in, in our workplaces, in our social networks, in our communities locally and globally. We're going to learn so much by observing these guys. We're going to see the gospel expand. We're going to see the movement of redemption move forward, and it is going to ripple out. And soon, there aren't going to be one church outside of Jerusalem that is prominent, but suddenly others will emerge. Ephesus is coming and Philippi is coming. Corinth is coming. We have Galatia coming. Rome is coming. We're going to see churches born all over the place that become prominent powerhouses for the movement of the gospel. And out of those churches, we're going to see young men and young women arise into leadership. We're going to see guys like Timothy come onto the scene who was discipled by Paul. And we're going to see that arise. We're going to see elders born in these churches, deacons born all over the place, people serving, living, leading, shepherding. It's going to be awesome to watch. And all of that, why? 
Because two guys were willing to go when they were asked and a community was willing to send when they were asked because they were seeking the will of God. They prayed the will of God. They did the will of God and they saw the will of God. And that's going to ripple on. And you know what's going to happen? If you think it's going to stop there, man, you got another thing coming. It doesn't stop there. See, that ripple that ripples out geographically and hits all of these other churches and sees the gospel move, move forward will actually expand beyond that generation into generations to come. And we will see it ripple across cultural boundaries, language boundaries, geographical boundaries, generational boundaries like we've never imagined. And we are going to find that ripple from the epicenter of Jerusalem at Pentecost ripple out and it's going to end where? It's going to end right here. But it hasn't ended here. It's going to end up here, and we're going to go, oh, it's still on the move. And we're going to go, oh, that's why this matters so much. That's why he wants us to observe the early church in the New Testament. That's why he wants us to understand what he's up to. Because we're part of this story. We are this story. We are the Sauls, the Barnabases, the Simeons. We are the Manons. We are the Peters and the, and, and, and the Johns and the Jameses. We are these people now. And so we emerge out of the book of Acts in chapter 28 and we enter chapter 29. We are Acts 29. We are emerging for that because we are the ones that now take the story onward. And what do we learn from this as we observe these folks? What do we see? That as we face obstacles that are bigger than we imagined when we step into mission, when we face obstacles bigger than we imagined in our cultural context, when our workplaces become unthinkable in sharing the gospel and stepping in because it's dangerous, when our social networks become awkward, when our culture becomes post-Christian and starts pressing hard in on us, when we suddenly start losing ground, what are we going to do? Are we going to fold? Are we going to crawl into a hole somewhere and gather up and go, just stay safe? Are we going to fight with, we'll take it all down? No, no, we're not. No, we're going to do exactly what we've observed and exactly what we've heard. We're going to engage deeply in intimacy with Christ. We're going to seek his will. And when he asks us to step out of our comfort zones and violate our own will, our own desire for his sake, we're going to step in. I mean, that's the great human battle, isn't it? Your will, will versus God's will. I mean, that's your every day. That's my every day right there. I have desires, I have entitlements, I have dreams, I have rights, I have things I want to see, I have a life I want to design, control, shape, and move. And God has this other story. And then he comes and he violates mine for his. And then I sit there and I have to make a decision. Do I trust his story or my story more? Do I trust his ways or my ways, his work or my work, his will or my will more? It's ultimately the grand question every day that you and I will face. And it happens in the smallest little things we do, and it happens in the biggest things we'll ever be asked to do. It happens when we're in that moment and some other human being that supposedly loves us and we supposedly love is treating us badly, violating our rights, stealing from us our joy, and we fight back. And God goes, shh, I want you to fight with the fruit of the Spirit now. Trust me. I don't want to. I understand. I do. I wouldn't want to either. But that's how freedom wins. That's how life wins. That's how light wins. And I've empowered you to that end. And so we are called. We are called to be willing to lay our lives down and say, your will be done, not my will, God. 
the author of Hebrews understood deeply this principle for us. In the uh, book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews writes these words in chapter 12, verse one. So guys, listen. Therefore, since you are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses before you, cast off everything that entangles and the sin that so easily entangles, everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and run with perseverance the race marked out before you. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross to rescue your soul. So when you're asked to endure crosses for his sake as an ambassador uh, of Jesus Christ, as a minister of reconciliation, that you will not grow weary and lose heart, but that you will live and bear that cross because he lived and bore your cross for you. You are free, so now you can live for him as a bond slave to his story. So the author of Hebrews says, live that way. So we, we start looking back and realize the epicenter of the gospel didn't begin in Jerusalem, did it? It actually began in Genesis. In Genesis is where God created us. In Genesis is where the story began. And we watch throughout human history the great battle of wills between human will and God's will. And every time we see a man or woman submit to the will of God and say, your will be done, not mine, we always see the outcome of that is redemptive. It's beautiful. It's powerful. Not easy. Don't, don't misunderstand me. Not easy, but beautiful. Think about it. Remember Abraham? Okay, I want you to get up and go. Where? Just go. Okay, go. Leave everything you know. And then he gets a promised son, and what does God say? I want you to take Isaac, I want you to sacrifice him to me. What? I mean, even we still go, are you sure that belongs in the Bible? That seems all wrong. I want you to do that. And, and Abraham's will versus God's will, who will you trust, Abraham? He steps into that story, one of the most beautiful stories that have emerged as a foreshadowing of Christ coming and being sacrificed for us. And then Moses, I want you to go. I'm the wrong guy. No, no, you're not. Go. Moses goes. The Red Sea parts. The people are rescued from Egypt. One of the greatest foreshadowing of the coming redemptive work of Jesus. We travel through, we bump into guys like Isaiah, encounters God in the temple, and he's just transformed by this encounter, and God goes, man, I, I, I got this great work to do. Whom shall I send? Who will go for me? And Isaiah's like, ah, I'm available. I'm willing. I'm free. I want to go. Send me, Lord. Send me. And, then, and a story births out of Isaiah, becomes one of the greatest voices of the coming Christ. We, we bump into a teenage girl in a little town called Nazareth. An angel shows up and says to her, listen, here's how it's going to work. You're going to be pregnant with a very special child. She goes, you got the wrong person. He goes, no, seriously, we got the right person. She's thinking in her head, I have no doubt. In my culture, you have to understand, if I'm found to be adulterous, they stone me to death. And look, when you're pregnant, there's no guessing, right? You're not married, you're pregnant. What story do you have to tell? I swear, an angel showed up and told me it would happen. Whatever. <laughs> so Mary's grappling with that, and here's her response. May it be as you have said. I am willing. If I die, I die. But man, I'll do whatever God wants. Jesus, our creator and sustainer in the Garden of Gethsemane, 
on his knees saying to his father, Father, if there is a way for this cup that's about to happen to pass, may it be so. Why did Jesus do that? Was he scared? Was he afraid? Was he broken? Did he want to not go to the cross? No. Jesus gifts us in that moment because he knows when the crosses we bear will become overwhelming to us and we will feel like they're too big. We should never have gotten into this. We should never have done this. This is crazy. We're going to get in our knees in a garden somewhere and go, please take it away. Please make it pass. Please, I'm done. I'm spent. I'm over. I'm finished. And Jesus is going to go, I I get it. It's okay. You can pray that. That's appropriate. It's appropriate to feel that way. But when you're done praying that, here's how you end that prayer, just like I did. I want you to take this away. But if your story is bigger than what I want, I want your story. I want in on your story so your will be done. I will bear this until I die if that's your story. Our Savior stepped into that willing place and because of that, he bore our cross and our souls were rescued and our purposes restored. That's big. And then we watched it happen in Peter and John and James, all the way to Saul. When Saul got sent out from Antioch, you think Saul got to go out into the world and see miraculous things appear everywhere and it's like just one church after another planted. He became the most successful planter of all times and people honored him and raised him up as the great church planter. He did conferences. He was paid six figures. It was unbelievable. No, none of that happened. No, Paul went from city to city and town to town. Every time he got somewhere, he got stoned. He got beaten. He got kicked out. He got sent and he had to write letters back to them. You guys are crazy. What are you doing? He went back and forth. He got shipwrecked. He got bitten by snakes, by mosquitoes, by bugs. He was in the ocean for days at a time, lost to sea after shipwrecks going, I'm going to die in the ocean. I mean, I'm, I'm not even starting with this poor guy. He had, I mean, when he stepped into this willingness, it came with hard things unbearable things, and yet his story turned out to be an extraordinary one as redemption bled out of him and he became a great ambassador for Jesus, a great minister of reconciliation. And this is what we're invited into. This is why the author of Hebrews says, man, consider those who have gone before you and the stories that emerged out of their lives. Watch them. And then when your will demands action that is violating what God has revealed to you. You abandon your will and you willingly step into his. And remember, everything God gave you in this life wasn't for your comfort alone. It was as a gift to you to make available to him so that he could use you in his story so that you would have the privilege and I would have the privilege of having been used by the creator and the sustainer of the universe. That's true freedom. That's true privilege. That's what we live for. And that's mission. So, the first three verses of chapter 13 tell us that we need to buckle up and be ready to follow Saul and Barnabas into some of the coolest, craziest stories we can imagine as we watch the very stories we can anticipate emerge before our eyes and watch what happens when a submitted, willing human being and a submitted, willing body of believers, community of God, trusts God and follows him. And man, it's gonna become cool. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your incredible, wondrous love for us. 
that you have not only rescued our soul but restored our purpose and then in restoring our purpose, you actually bother to provide for us the things we need that you're gonna ask us to give so that we can live the life you have prepared for us to live and, and finish the good works you have prepared for us to do as your workmanship. God, this is, this is crazy cool that you would do this for us, provide for us so that we in turn can live for you. God, would you shift our focus off of our will, our desire, our entitlements, our rights, our comforts, the things we tend to be obsessed with. Would you shift our focus onto your will, your entitlements, your rights, your honor, your glory, your comfort, your joy. God, may we live for you, actually. And may we do it not just in the big decisions, the big, crazy things you call us into, but may we do it every day, recognizing that Every day we get the opportunity to test our will against yours and to abandon it whenever necessary, whenever you ask. God, may we become a people who are wholly submitted to you, seeking your will, discovering your will, praying your will, doing your will, seeing your will. Make it so in this place, Jesus, we pray. Amen.